All right, greetings, fellow Earthlings. So, in this episode of And Another Thing, I want to discuss the movie, uh, documentary film, Plutocracy, by filmmaker Scott Noble. And here I am quoting from uh, Wiki, Wikipedia, uh, from their press release, maybe, looks like. Um, filmsforaction.org. Plutocracy by filmmaker Scott Noble is the first documentary series to comprehensively examine American history through the lens of class. Part 1, Divide and Rule, focuses on the ways in which the American people have historically been divided on the basis of race, ethnicity, sex, and skill level. So, with no further ado... Let's get into Plutocracy, people. Perhaps the best documentary series ever made. Definitely one of them. Plutocracy is a nonprofit film and has been released online for free, which is why I'm able to do this. First quote I can hire one half of the working class to kill the other half. Jay Gould, American Railroad developer. Each mining town was a feudal dominion with the company acting as lord and master. There was a town marshal, a law enforcement officer paid by the company. The company store held a monopoly on goods sold to workers and their families. Company officials were appointed as election judges. Company teachers, using company-approved textbooks, taught the next generation of children. Company-appointed doctors and lawyers prevented injured employees from collecting damages. The laws were the company's rules. The imagery in this film is rich, and I'm going to have to pause and, and interject. I won't break up the film as uh, that much, but I just, oh, they're showing these harrowing images of children mine workers crammed into a mining elevator about to go down under the earth, or maybe they're just coming up after their shift, but, you know, little eight, nine-year-old kids. Then there are other pictures with these little eight, nine-year-old kids, their faces just covered in coal. Same with old men. No face masks, no respirators. Just get down there and work for 10 cents an hour. East Giardini describes typical working conditions. They broke their backs and died of roof falls and rib rolls and gas. Their children went to bed hungry and died of the typhoid. Their wives took the consumption. They themselves coughed and spit up. They stayed in debt to the company store. They had no say at the mine or freedom of any kind. They could be let go at a moment's notice and put out in the road or beaten or shot. 
black lung disease and other work-related ailments took thousands of lives, while catastrophic accidents were a daily concern. On December 6, 1907, the most deadly mine disaster in U.S. history occurred when an explosion killed 361 men and boys in a West Virginia coal mine owned by the Fairmount Corporation. The earth shook as far as eight miles away, knocking people and horses off their feet. Frantic women spent days searching through the wreckage for their loved ones. In the words of one witness, their shrieks of agony were not to move the hardest heart to sorrow. At the time of the disaster, the American coal industry was only half a century old, yet had already killed and crippled more men than during any battle of the Civil War. Accident rates in American mines were double that of Germany, three times that of England, and four times that of France. Workers were fighting back, and gains were being made. In its 2003 American Labor History-themed study, the U.S. National Park Service recognized that strike activity from the time period was not just motivated by economic concerns. It also involved freedom from industrial feudalism, freedom from the terrorism inflicted by hired gunmen, and the struggle for liberties promised in the Bill of Rights. In 1912, coal miners in Kanawha County, West Virginia, issued a list of demands, including a shorter workday, the right to organize, recognition of a worker's constitutional rights to free speech and assembly, an end to the blacklisting of union organizers, and alternatives to company stores. The requested pay raise would have cost the company 15 cents per miner, per day. Instead of negotiating, the company hired a private militia to break the strike. The Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency had become notorious throughout the region for using violence to prevent union organizing. 300 private detectives arrived and began evicting families from their homes, forcing the miners to set up a tent colony at Holly Grove. In July, the Irish immigrant and labor activist Mother Jones arrived to show her support. Jones had been declared the most dangerous woman in America due to her success in organizing workers. A decade earlier, she led a children's march from Philadelphia to the hometown of President Theodore Roosevelt, demanding an end to child labor. In Kanawha County, Jones persuaded more workers to join the strike. Along with Frank Keeney of the United Mine Workers, she then arranged a march of 3,000 miners to the state capitol in Charleston, where she read the Declaration of Independence. The miners saw themselves as industrial slaves, and they were ready to rebel against their masters.
On July 26th, strikers attacked Baldwin Felt's agents in the town of Mucklow. Four guards and 12 strikers were killed. The state government declared martial law. Attacks against minors in Kanawha by both police and private security forces were routine and often deadly. In February, a posse led by the local sheriff, Bonner Hill, drove a heavily armored train nicknamed the Bull Moose Special toward the tent colony at Holly Grove, then opened fire with a machine gun. One man was killed and over a dozen wounded. A few days later, another police raid killed several men. Mother Jones was arrested on February 13th and charged in military court. Refusing to recognize the court's jurisdiction, she was convicted of incitement to riot and conspiracy to commit murder. Her sentence, 20 years in the state penitentiary. So, once again, then as now, you have our government standing behind corrupt corporations, in this case, corporations that hire goon squads to use lethal force. But as they just said, that was common practice. It was common practice for the company to beat workers, to throw them on the street, to shoot them, to murder them with impunity. But as soon as the worker stands up and demands either a petty increase in pay or some type of increase in uh, worker safety, the government sides with the company time after time after time and puts the smack down on the worker. As winter set in, conditions in the tent colony grew increasingly dire. At least a dozen men died from starvation. In March, West Virginians elected a new governor. He took a more conciliatory approach, freeing 30 minors held under martial law statutes and transferring Mother Jones to Charleston for medical treatment. She was released after 85 days. The strikers were forced to accept a settlement under threat of deportation from the state. Some workers continued to fight for another six months. According to a later study by the Senate's Committee on Education and Labor, about 50 violent deaths had occurred during the Paint Cabin Creek strike, mostly workers. Yet no reforms resulted, even as the mining of coal drove the American economy to new heights, the men and boys who removed it from the ground were considered expendable. Similar events would take place eight years later when striking miners in Matewan, West Virginia were subjected to a series of assaults by Baldwin Felt detectives employed by the Stone Mountain Coal Company. Workers and their families were evicted from their homes. <laughs>
while union organizers were blacklisted and beaten. Events came to a head when Mate One's police chief, Sid Hatfield, made the rare move of siding with the workers against the company. A gunfight broke out, killing seven detectives and three townsmen. with dynamiting a coal tipple, an allegation most miners considered fraudulent. As he ascended the courthouse steps with his deputy, Ed Chambers, both men were gunned down in cold blood. At the time, the United Mine Workers were facing setbacks. Though they had successfully organized much of West Virginia, the southern coal fields remained entirely in the control of corporations. 80% of mines in the area had reopened due to the importing of replacement workers, commonly called scabs, while returning strikers were required to sign so-called yellow dog contracts, agreements in which workers pledged not to join a union. A coal company lawyer, S.B. Avis, explained the concerns of management. It is like a servant lives at your house. If the servant leaves your employment, if you discharge him, you ask him to get out of the servant's quarters. It is a question of master and servant. Evicted from their homes, miners set up tent colonies and began a campaign of guerrilla warfare engaging in skirmishes up and down the Tug Fork River. Casualties resulted on both sides. In May, the government declared martial law, but the legislation was unequally enforced. Workers were the primary target, with hundreds arrested and denied habeas corpus rights. When Sid Hatfield was shot, the miners decided that they had had enough. Men along the Little Coal River were the first to militarize, setting up guard posts and patrols. Meanwhile, word of the unlawful executions was spreading. In a matter of days, some 12,000 coal miners took up arms and began planning a march on Logan and Mingo counties. The goal was to free imprisoned workers end martial law, and organize the entire region. Standing in the way was Blair Mountain, a 2,000-foot natural impediment occupied by the National Guard. The war was defined by class. Most lower-class workers supported the insurrection. In contrast, Logan County Sheriff Don Chaffin made an appeal to business owners. Americans should do their patriotic duty, he claimed, by opposing the workers and preventing mob rule. Chaffin's salary was partly subsidized by the coal companies. The miners, 
wore red bandanas, earning them the nickname Rednecks. It was the largest armed uprising in the United States since the Civil War. forces were heavily armed with cutting-edge munitions, including machine guns and even planes, which were used to drop homemade chemical weapons and shrapnel bombs on the Redneck Army. At one point, bombers from Maryland were flown in to perform aerial surveillance. Despite their superior weaponry and despite their superior tactical position, the National Guard was outnumbered three to one. Equally important, the rebels had extensive knowledge of the terrain. While the guardsmen felled trees and dug trenches, the miners made use of natural pathways, rapidly ascending the mountain. According to archaeologist Harvard Ayers, who made an extensive study of Blair Mountain artifacts, the Redneck Army would almost certainly have won the battle, but the coal companies had a trump card. On September 1, 1921, President Warren G. Harding sent in federal troops from Fort Thomas, Kentucky. The miners, many of whom had fought in World War I, refused to engage American soldiers. Many even celebrated their arrival, regarding them as comrades in arms but their trust was misplaced. After surrendering, 1,217 indictments were laid down, including 325 for murder and 24 for treason. It is likely that many of the miners would have been executed, but the public was sympathetic to their plight. Of the men convicted, most only served a few years in prison. Bill Blizzard, who was regarded by authorities as the general of the miners' army, was first tried at the Jefferson County Courthouse in Charlestown. The same building in which John Brown had been tried for treason in 1859. Brown had led a failed revolt against the institution of slavery in the United States and was subsequently hanged. Blizzard, though tried several times in several different locations, was eventually acquitted. The West Virginian mine wars were part of a broader conflict between the forces of labor and the forces of capital, a struggle that claimed the lives of thousands of American workers in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Thousands more were beaten, maimed, imprisoned, tortured, and sent to early graves due to poor working conditions and dismal safety standards. According to historian Philip Taft, the United States during this time period was home of the bloodiest and most violent labor history of any industrial nation in the world. All right, and that was quite a long, drawn-out introduction to this wonderful documentary 
called Plutocracy, Part 1, Divide and Rule. A film by Scott Noble. The American state was born of a rebellion, but not the one American children are taught about in school. In 1786, one year before the Constitutional Convention, farmers in Western Massachusetts organized a resistance movement against the state legislature in Boston. Most of the men were veterans of the Revolutionary War. Heavily indebted, Overtaxed and facing foreclosures of their homes and farms, they petitioned their government for redress. No help was forthcoming. Wealth inequality in the United States had been steadily increasing over the past century. In 1687 Boston, the top 1% owned 25% of the wealth. By 1770, that number had risen to 44%. During the same time period, the number of people who owned no property increased from 14% to 29%. The leader of the revolt was Daniel Shays, who had served as a captain in the Continental Army and fought at the Battle of Lexington. Under his leadership, rebels in Massachusetts forcefully closed local courts and liberated imprisoned debtors from jail. Governor James Bowden responded by organizing a state militia funded by wealthy merchants. The rebellion was crushed, but its legacy was profound. Here's a powerful quote. Those who own the country ought to govern it. By John Jay, the first Chief Justice of the United States in 1789. So there it is. Our country was founded by rich, white, land-owning men and the laws in place and the people governing those laws were put there to protect the people who owned land and their land ownership. The United States Constitution was written by men, primarily property men, this is John Manley, political scientist. By the threats to private property and to their own wealth and income and power that were occurring all over the colonies uh, in the 18th century. You didn't have a strong central government. The states were actually sovereign entities, pretty much independent of one another. And some states would do this and other states would do that. You didn't have any power in the Articles of Confederation to deal with commerce. There was no executive branch. There was no central power. The states were really independent sovereignties, and they pretty much went their own way, depending on the influence and the power of the particular interests and 
people in the power structure in the individual states. So the problem uh, came to a head in 1786, 1787. Various people were rising up and uh, protesting the fact that they were being exploited, that they were not living anything like a decent existence. They were being, uh, they felt ripped off by courts and by banks and by the then existing power structure. These farmers, many of whom had been members of the Revolutionary Army, uh, having fought off England, felt they deserved a somewhat better shake than they were getting. The state militia was called in and put it down bloodily. The problem, from the point of view of the Founding Fathers, the framers of the Constitution, was that this was not happening just in western Massachusetts. It was happening in places like Rhode Island uh, and in Virginia as well. There was no central authority to organize the reaction to the kinds of things that were going on. This was a clear and present danger as perceived by George Washington, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and a lot of other very wealthy, very powerful, very elite men. There was a call for a meeting in 1786, which led to another call for a meeting in 1787, and various states sent delegates to that meeting in Philadelphia. And the first thing they did was close the doors. They didn't want any you know, reporters reporting on their daily uh, discussions. So they uh, closed the doors and they junked the Articles of Confederation completely. They were only authorized to revise the Articles of Confederation by the state delegations that, that they represented. Some of the southern states were dependent on slavery for their essential existence and for their workforce. So abolishing slavery did not happen in Philadelphia in 1787. Madison, of course, was a slave owner. Jefferson was a slave owner. Washington was a slave owner. Some people wanted to abolish slavery right out. There were lots of pressures going on in Europe and elsewhere for simply this, the abolishment of slavery. So what they did was they didn't abolish slavery, but they set a 20-year limit on it. And after 20 years, the slave trade in the United States would be stopped. There would be no more commerce in slaves. But the slaves that were there would, of course, reproduce and the kids would still be slaves. But there wouldn't be the odious uh, slave markets. So that was a bow in the direction of lessening the tight hold of the slave south on the country as a whole. What happened was they allowed the famous three-fifth compromise. States with, which had large numbers of slaves and depended on those slaves for their labor force, those states would, for purposes of representation in the House of Representatives, slaves would be counted as three-fifths of a person. <laughs> so slaves were credited politically in establishing the population and the membership in the Southern society, but only a three-fifths of a person. One of the key people in the effort at ratification was Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton jumped up the idea of publishing a series of papers, and he got James Madison and he got John Jay, who was the first Chief Justice of the United States under the new Constitution, 
to add their names to his effort, and they published a series of papers which became famous as the Federalist Papers. Although Hamilton did participate in the convention, he had relatively little influence there. He had a lot of influence later in the passage of the Constitution in New York, but his views were so to the right of everybody else's and so elitist. You know, he sort of was like uh, represented Wall Street before there was a Wall Street. The key guy at the convention was really James Madison. He wrote for Hamilton's Federalist Papers, and one of the papers that Madison authored was Federalist Number 10. Madison's Federalist 10 was a very short essay, appeared in a newspaper, in which he basically outlined the philosophical context, the theoretical context, within which the Constitution was adopted, and within which the subsequent U.S. government would uh, perform its governmental activities. In Federalist 10, Madison defined the problem that they faced in Philadelphia as how do we deal with the problem of factions? The idea of factions was that there were all these different social groupings in the country, and you could have in the country people with a class interest organizing and taking power and you wanted to structure the system then against the possibility that they might be able to pull that off. Especially the faction that he was worried about there was the majority faction. The essence of the majority faction would be a populistic power center. If too much power were placed in the hands of the people in a democratic society, that was a danger. If too much power was in the hands of the rich and powerful in a less democratic or non-democratic society, that was equally a problem to be dealt with. If you want to understand the U.S. Constitution, I think you have to put it in the context of the class struggle that was going on in these states at this time. If you read the discussions and the notes, especially at Madison's, it's quite clear what they felt and what they thought. Madison saw the new country as highly turbulent, full of conflicts, and he argued that the United States, perhaps they didn't have the extremes of wealth and poverty found in Europe, but in all civilized countries, he argued, and I'm quoting here, the people fall into different classes having a real or supposed difference of interest. There are creditors, he said, debtors, farmers, merchants, and manufacturers. There are, he continued, in particularly, the distinction of rich and poor. In the future, Madison said, there will be even greater inequality. An increase of population will of necessity increase the proportion of those who will labor under all the hardships of life and secretly sigh for a more equal distribution of its blessings. In what clearer statement could you have of a class conflict model and understanding of the world in which he lived? One of the reasons Jefferson bought the middle part of the continent, the Louisiana Purchase, was that whites would have property and, and land to go and 
establish themselves uh, as independent producers, not people who worked for the power of capital, not people whose livelihood depended on the powerful and the rich, but who were themselves sort of artisans, sort of independent producers who weren't working for someone else, whose labor was not producing profits for someone else, but profits for themselves and their families. The federal government gave them land tremendously at the expense and detriment of the Indians who lived there in a completely different and in many ways superior society. The Indians, of course, did not see property as something to exploit and own, but something to work and produce and distribute for people who needed it on the basis of their need and on the basis of what they could to do to increase and contribute. Madison knew that the agrarian American dream of Thomas Jefferson was not going to be replicated in the 19th century. He saw industrial capitalism coming here as well as it had been advanced even farther along in England and in European countries. And uh, he basically, I think, didn't have an answer to how you stopped industrial capitalism from displacing not only slavery, which it did, but the whole idea of a democratic republic of relatively equal people in which there is not a hideously uneven distribution of wealth and income and power. And he thought that, in fact, if that happened, this Republican experiment of theirs would die. June 2nd, 1865. General Edmund Kirby Smith, commander of Confederate forces west of the Mississippi, signs terms of surrender to the Union Army. The event marks the end of the American Civil War, the bloodiest internal conflict in U.S. history. During the previous four years, 625,000 soldiers perished, and much of the South's infrastructure lies in ruins. As in all wars, the poor had performed the lion's share of the fighting and dying. Billionaire steel magnate Andrew Carnegie paid a poor man to fight on his behalf, as did J.P. Morgan, Jay Gould, and John D. Rockefeller. Their abdication was made possible by the Conscription Enrollment Act of 1863, which allowed the rich to avoid military service for a cash payment of $300. James Mellon's father wrote to his son, a man may be a patriot without risking his own life or sacrificing his health. There are plenty of lives less valuable. The ability of the wealthy to buy their way out of military service caused rage amongst the poor, leading to draft riots in some cities. Most dramatic was the New York riot of 1863, 
which resulted in the deaths of 2,000 protesters and the wounding of another 8,000. This is a great scene that needs a little clarification. There's a an angry mob outside and uh, this family sitting down in their Elizabethan gowns and their beautiful Victorian clothing in their Victorian mansion, you know, about to have dinner at their formal dining room table with their fine china. And then all of a sudden, the mob starts throwing stuff through the window and charging the mansion. Kind of like what's going on right now with Nancy Pelosi and the pig head in front of her gar in front of her garage, if that's even real. <laughs> While government officials and the wealthy were targeted during the riot, so too were African Americans. Ah, oh, brutal footage. Oh. Rioters set fire to the Colored Orphans Asylum, burning it to the ground. Man. A nine-year-old black boy was attacked and killed at the corner of Broadway and Chambers. Brutal. And several black men were lynched, their bodies mutilated, and set on fire. Uh. Though racism was prominent amongst all ethnicities, anti-black sentiment was especially pronounced in the Irish-American community, despite, or perhaps because of, parallel forms of discrimination faced by both groups. From the beginnings of the colonial era, Irish immigrants had existed at the very bottom of white society. Hundreds of thousands of Irish people had been forced into indentured servitude, and though this practice was eventually eliminated, the Irish continued to face violent repression in their native land. In the mid-19th century, they arrived in the New World, unskilled and desperate for work. Brutal poverty became the norm. One study estimated that 80% of babies born to 19th century Irish immigrants in New York died while in infancy. Irish women mostly worked as servants or prostitutes, while males were stereotyped as violent criminals. The term paddy wagon, slang for police car, derives from the ethnic slur paddy, which in turn derives from the common Irish name Patrick. Irish immigrants were mocked for their accents, their religion, and their overall impoverishment. They were also amongst the first ethnic groups in the United States to form labor unions. Eventually, business owners began placing signs in their windows reading Nina, no Irish need apply. In the South, Irish immigrants became known as white Negroes. Slaves were considered valuable property and were prevented from engaging in dangerous work. As a result, the most perilous jobs were left to the Irish. One businessman explained, Negroes are worth too much to be risked here. If the patties are knocked overboard, nobody loses anything. Thousands of Irish immigrants died during the building of the nation's canals and railroads. 
the great American abolitionist, Frederick Douglass, became especially attuned to conflicts between Irish and African Americans. Douglass had been able to purchase his freedom in large part due to donations by citizens in Ireland, which he visited during the Potato Famine in 1845. The Irish saw in the American slave a corollary to their own degraded condition and were strongly supportive of the abolitionist movement. In the United States itself, it was a different story. Douglas wrote, the Irish who at home readily sympathize with the oppressed everywhere are instantly taught when they step upon our soil to hate and despise the Negro. The cruel eyes told them that we deprive them of labor and receive the money that would otherwise make its way into their pockets. Yet the competition created by employers was real. African Americans were often forced into conflict with low-status white immigrants for work and were sometimes used as strike breakers. So here we go. Some things never change, right? So government societies always pointing the finger at at a group an immigrant group as being the problem instead of looking up like what's the real problem oh the business owners don't want to pay a living wage and they're hoarding their wealth i mean you could say the same thing right now right with jeff bezos being the richest person in the freaking world in the country whatever and uh, but if you're an Amazon worker in a fulfillment warehouse, you can't take a bathroom break or you get docked for not being on the floor. So they have pee bottles. Like, are you kidding me? Unbelievable. Only four months before the draft riot, black workers were used to derail a strike of mostly Irish longshoremen on the docks of New York. I mean... So here, this is a great point. So see, they're using black workers to break a strike. So they're lower paid, obviously, and so desperate for work that they're willing to go and break the strike. They need the work. You can't blame them. But who you blame are the people paying them, right? So, you know, here's the onset of racism. One group getting pit against another one, and they're both just working people trying to survive. And meanwhile, there's some bastard up in his house on the hill that's orchestrating this whole thing, pulling all the strings behind the scene. major theme in the propaganda against the abolitionist movement was that free black men would depress the wages of white workers. In 1860, General Leslie Combs warned at a Democratic meeting, The unemployed slaves will be found among you in sufficient numbers to compete with you at your wharves and your docks and in every branch of labor in which white people alone are now employed. Following the Civil War, whites of all ethnicities were encouraged by Southern elites to unite against Reconstruction, the inspiring but failed attempt by African Americans to achieve social, economic, and political equality in the South. And there's another period of uh, U.S. history that's not even talked about in our school system is Reconstruction which was absolutely a success, except it, like it just touched on briefly there, was being undermined, methodically undermined and chipped away at and chiseled away at 
by uh, by the government, by corporations with their tons of money, and just undermined at every turn. Here's a great quote. You are made to hate each other because upon that hatred is rested the keystone of the arch of financial despotism which enslaves you both. Tom Watson, American populist leader, late 19th century. And there it is. The factory owner creates the hatred of the other because if we get together, then they are doomed. That's the reality of it. The Reconstruction period is little understood. It's a moment when something big happened that we usually only remember for the bad things that happened afterwards. We know that it turned out badly, that black people were defeated, that there was the Klan and lynching and their rights were taken away, and we ended up with Jim Crow segregation and terrorism. What we tend to appreciate less in America's classrooms is that brief moment in the sun when new things genuinely became possible. When the Civil War concluded, the slaves were freed by their own effort. They had shot their way to freedom. They had joined the Union Army in enormous numbers. They had run away and lent their services to the Union Army. They had withdrawn their labor from the southern plantations. And they had made the crucial difference to conclude the war. They turned it into a revolutionary war for emancipation. We could just imagine the tremendous confidence that they gained at a moment like that. Once they concluded that struggle and were free, then of course the last thing they wanted was to return to that same slave-like condition. And so they did many, many things to transform their circumstances. They tried to seize land and the land of their former masters and work it for themselves. They tried to build schools, and they did build schools. In fact, they built the first public schools in the South. They, with the help of northern troops who had occupied the South, totally reconstructed social life. Black people not only served on juries, which was unheard of, they served as judges. And you have cases of white people coming before a black judge to try to get justice. It took a hundred years for as many black people to be elected to Congress as we had elected in Congress during Reconstruction. Elected to Congress. So... There was something radical that was going on. The world was turned upside down. And this is the same period as the Paris Commune, the time when working people in the city of Paris tried to take over the city and run it for themselves and formed a commune. That coincidence, the idea that the people on the bottom were now suddenly on top, and that they had made all kinds of alliances with poor white people and were setting up public schools public hospitals, facilities for poor people generally, not just for black people. I think it sent a, a tremor of terror through the American ruling class. Something's wrong here. The real problem is that the northern ruling class, the industrialists of the north, were not consistent allies 
for black liberation. First of all, they didn't fight the Civil War in order to free slaves. They fought the Civil War to save the Union. Once the slave owners' rebellion was put down, they lost interest in the, pro in the project of black rights and social equality. They also lost interest in land reform. Giving land, 40 acres and a mule, to freed people, only to the radical Republicans did that seem like justice. To the northern industrialists, now they wanted to get on with the business of making, remaking the South in their own image, and that meant making money. And that meant also that the former slaves had to get back to work. Uh, and they had to get back to work producing those very lucrative and valuable commodities like cotton that they were producing before. And so the struggle to get the former freed people back to work as wage workers, the very thing they really did not want to be, they wanted to be independent and own land, is the fact that they lost their former allies. The political alliance that they made with poor whites and their collective struggle and organization was not strong enough to withstand the new ruling class offensive once the northern troops withdrew their forces. The compromise between the northern and southern elites was essentially like, okay, you can get back to business now. We'll withdraw our troops and let's, you know, let's get on with it now that, now that that struggle is over. And unfortunately, that left black people high and dry. But if we skip over that moment, that window, when new things were possible, new possibilities were opened up, then we miss what all the struggle was about. You know, why do you have to have the Klan? Why do you have to have terrorize people? Why do you have to murder people who are trying to vote? It's important to understand how much of a threat this new reconstructed order, what Du Bois calls black reconstruction, how much of a threat that was, that it threatened to become a kind of working-class democracy. New laws, known as Black Codes, were passed throughout the South. In Mississippi, blacks could be arrested if they left a job before the end of a contract. In South Carolina, a law prohibited black people from holding any occupation other than farmer or servant, unless they paid an annual tax. Some states limited the type of property blacks could own and allowed employers to whip them. Jim Crow laws enforced segregation and curtailed African-American voting rights. During the same time period, poor white voters were also disenfranchised. When Mississippi passed a new poll tax, the number of qualified white voters fell from 130,000 to 68,000. An editorial in the Charlotte Observer praised the disenfranchisement of both black and poor white voters in North Carolina as the struggle of the white people to rid themselves of the dangers of the rule of Negroes and the lower class of whites. So here we have the origins of the KKK, which, which history books just conveniently skip over in, in U.S. history, in high school, junior high, even in college history classes. So why did the, so first of all, who were the KKK? Well, they were either business owners or the goon squad of business owners. They were law enforcement officers. Um, 
They were all the people that they just talked about right there that were scared about losing their stranglehold of the on the wealth of the country and their you know self-perceived deserved place in society or whatever as some anointed person or whatever so hell no we can't let you know these people rule themselves so then that gives rise to the birth of the kkk and all the horrors and terrorism that follows but u.s history just glosses right over that the whole reconstruction part and then it's like well how the hell what gave birth to the kkk what the fuck why did we allow it to go on why did we allow the fucking kkk you know, these are conversations that never happen. It's just swept under the rug because you don't want the bigger conversation to come out that it was a labor war, that this was the rich landowners, the elite of the country, putting the smackdown on working people and then trying to divide those working people because heaven forbid we unite and charge the, you know, the theoretical castles. It would be like the French Revolution, and they don't want that. They don't want guillotines in this country. Leading the charge against Reconstruction was a coalition of elite Democrats known as the Redeemers, wealthy businessmen and landowners who attempted to maintain the conditions of slavery in all but name. In the words of historian C. Van Woodward, the Redeemers frankly constituted themselves as champions of the property owner against the property less and allegedly untaxed masses. Between the years 1882 and 1930, a black man was lynched or legally executed in the United States every four days. A study by Stuart Tolney and E. Beck demonstrated that these lynchings tended to follow economic cycles with blacks safer from mob violence when the profits were high. According to historian Robert N. Grando, not infrequently, the mob was encouraged or led by people prominent in the area's political and business circles. showing disgusting photographs of people dressed up in nice clothes at a gathering of a lynching. So it's like a social function. How disgusting. The racially targeted violence of the Klan and other vigilante groups was not limited to blacks. In the Southwest, interracial violence was a routine occurrence between whites, Native Americans, Hispanics, and Mexican Americans. The sheer number of European immigrants expanding westward sealed the fate of the land's original inhabitants. In California, a genocidal campaign had produced the indigenous population from 150,000 in 1846 to 30,000 by 1870. It's another thing we don't learn about in our history books is... Um, the fact that it was a planned genocide to clear the land of these quote-unquote savages. You know, what I learned 
in my history books was that these savages scalped U.S. Uh, homesteaders as they were making their innocently making their way westward. Well, it's quite a different reality. The Native American learned to scalp from the white man. Why? Because the white man was paid to go by the federal government to go hunt Native Americans. They started off paying for um, for scalp, and then I think they switched to ears. Disgusting. So at one period in California, you could get paid five bucks a scalp. That's our government. The Sacramento Union newspaper reported in 1862. The baby hunters sneak up to a rancheria, kill the bucks, pick out the best looking squaws, ravish them, and make off with their young ones. As the Indian population was decimated, and as new borders were charted in the wake of the Mexican-American War, nine whites found themselves labeled aliens in their own ancestral lands. Here's a quote by Howard Zinn. He wrote a wonderful book called The People's History of the United States. As we look into it, the Monroe—excuse <clears throat> me—as we look into it, the Monroe Doctrine begins to look like the common tendency of all new nations to build a cordon santer around themselves, and indeed to stretch that far beyond the needs of self-defense. "Quote unquote expansionism was a trait of the American nation, as of other nations." as of any unit bursting with power in a competitive, lawless world. The American conquest of Mexico was first presaged by efforts to acquire northern regions of Mexico non-violently, first through purchase, but when that failed, the architects of westward expansion engineered a war that ultimately allowed for the U.S. to occupy strategic points of Mexico, including Los Angeles, San Diego, New Mexico, and Arizona. After the cessation of the war, the United States acquired what is today the Southwest with the signing of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848 which compelled Mexico to forfeit its northern half of the country, and with it, tens of thousands of Mexicans who now lived in a land that they had always lived in, but was now part of a foreign country. Within a short period of time, the incoming Anglo-American population quickly outnumbered the Mexican population and began to construct a legal regime to displace the landowning Mexican population and to reduce the rest of the population to labor in the new industrial firms, agriculture, railroads, mining, etc. On the heels of the failure of reconstruction and the creation of Jim Crow, these techniques of racially segregating a population were applied throughout the Southwest, and Mexicans quickly found themselves not only dispossessed of their land, but limited as to where they could live, where they could work, 
what social spaces they could even travel through. Even though the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo guaranteed that they would have a path to citizenship and would enjoy equality under the law, they found themselves legislatively constructed as a foreign people, as a people with little rights, as a people in some parts of the Southwest who couldn't own land, who couldn't work in certain types of jobs, who couldn't intermarry or intermix with the European American population, and ultimately relegated to a second class of citizenship, much in the way that African Americans were in the U.S. South. Wow. Banned from intermarrying or interbreeding with white U.S. citizens. Wow. And they had their land taken from, so they had a big ranch in Texas or New Mexico or any of any of the territories, California, their land was just seized from them and they were booted off of it. And now they're squatters somewhere having to work for somebody instead of having a ranch and a farm and land. And wow. By the turn of the century, American corporations were largely in control of the Mexican economy. The Rockefellers, Guggenheims, Morgans, Hearsts, and other wealthy families had made billions by exploiting Mexican resources and labor, while Mexican rulers served American corporate interests over those of their own people. Mexican troops and rural armies, or rurales, drove farmers off their land, leading to massive impoverishment. In the wake of the Civil War, a similar pattern of dislocation occurred in the United States itself. Here's a great quote by Frederick Douglass. The white slave has taken his by indirection what the black slave had taken from him directly and without ceremony. Both are plundered and by the same plunderers. Powerful. A time of incredible transformation rapid industrialization, hothouse economic growth. Uh, every decade in the late 19th century saw either an acute recession or a major depression, throwing thousands if not millions of people out of work, pushing businesses into bankruptcy. All of this was an incredible challenge for working people. On the eve of the Civil War, the United States was predominantly an agricultural nation. 
by the turn of the 20th century, it was the number one industrial power in the world. So what this meant for working men and women and children was as they faced proletarianization, as they faced the rise of corporate capitalism, powerful corporations sometimes exercising a tyrannical impact on their lives, it meant that they had very little chance at achieving the economic independence they had come to expect. As corporations grew so powerful in the late 19th century, inequality radically increased. Henry George said, uh, memorably, the tramp comes along with the locomotive, the prison, the almshouse comes along with mansions. Freed from virtually any government oversight, corporate monopolies were established in all of the major industries. The names remain familiar. John D. Rockefeller's Standard Oil, Cornelius Vanderbilt's Central Railroad, Andrew Carnegie's Carnegie Steel, J.P. Morgan's Banking House. The robber barons portrayed themselves as virtuous high flyers in a fair, free market economy. Many even told stories of previous poverty and in a few instances were telling the truth. Yet a study of 303 textile, railroad, and steel executives from the 1870s revealed that 90% had come from middle-class or upper-class families. While publicly singing the praises of laissez-faire capitalism, the robber barons took every opportunity to bribe politicians and crush their competitors. Payoffs became so expensive that some industrialists established bribe caps, a variant on price fixing. During the 1870s, when Jay Gould and Cornelius Vanderbilt competed over control of the Erie Railroad, they held a meeting in New York where they negotiated a ceiling for bribing politicians. By the late 19th century, American corporations had become so powerful that even some members of the ruling class expressed concern. In 1888, President Rutherford B. Hayes wrote in his diary that the United States was becoming a government of the corporation, by the corporation, and for the corporation. In public discourse, Congress became known as the Millionaires Club.
while profits accrued at the top, misery accrued at the bottom. 90% of American families survived on less than $100 per month. In contrast, at the height of their power, the combined fortunes of Morgan, Rockefeller, and Carnegie totaled today's equivalent of $1 trillion. Workplace death rates were shocking. Records from the 1899 Interstate Commerce Commission revealed that during that year alone, and in that industry alone, 22,000 railroad workers were killed or injured. Brutal exploitation in the workplace was mirrored by increasingly squalid living conditions in the home. Charles Dickens, who had become internationally famous for his vivid portrayals of the English working class, was appalled by what he witnessed during a mid-19th century trip to New York. After visiting the notorious slum known as Five Points, he wrote of figures crawling half-awakened as if the judgment hour were near at hand and every obscene grave were giving up its dead. Where dogs would howl to lie, women and men and boys slink off to sleep, forcing the dislodged rats to move away in quest of better lodgings. signified by the massacre at Wounded Knee. In 1890, U.S. Army soldiers slaughtered 300 men, women, and children on the Lakota Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. By the same date, nearly all of the buffalo on the North American continent had disappeared. Register reported after the massacre at Wounded Knee that the Red Savage is pretty well subdued, but there are white savages growing more numerous and dangerous as our great cities become greater. Ignored wow. by the political class, poor Americans banded together to survive. American workers were profoundly influenced by small r republicanist ideas ideas that the most valued citizen in America is the honest producer, the idea that labor creates all wealth, the idea that citizens should be equal, the idea that they should expect to achieve some degree of economic independence. This meant, in turn, massive protests rocking the United States in the late 19th century as working people and indeed as entire communities rose up in protest against what they saw as injustice. There were no minimum wage laws or maximum hour laws. 
economic insecurity became an important part of their lives. In order to survive, they needed to rely on a family economy so that not only would the men go out to work, but women would take in work often, do laundry, take in borders, or increasingly go out to factories looking for work. It meant that even children needed to be economically productive. Increasingly, children were going into factories to work. Child labor became a huge issue. The number of children under the age of 16 roughly doubled. By 1900, something like 20% of all American workers were under the age of 18. Now, I just got to interject right here. How quickly we forget, right? These these Republicans who worship Ronald Reagan and deregulation. Well, what does deregulation lead to? Leads right back to child labor, an unlimited work, you know, hours in the work week. We fought hard and people bled and died for the eight hour work day, the 40 hour work week for overtime. This is important. This is important stuff that is totally just glossed over in our society. First started to work as a, as a breaker while I was 12 years old. Boy, what a place. You sat on a hard seat. You didn't get a cushion at nowhere. No matter how much you, what you have, you wouldn't, you have to sit on that plain plank with your feet in the chute and bend over like this, throwing the rock out. A man who's known as a slate boss, walking around with a broom, stub of a broom. He'd look behind you. If you live in your rockabye, you got a poke or a sock across the back. Well, I'll tell you, it was very scary. Believe me. You didn't dare say anything. You didn't dare quit. Because it was something to have a job. At eight cents an hour. Your fingernails... You had none. The, the, actually, were, the ends of them would be bleeding every day you come from work. So we fashioned out amongst ourselves, us boys, got old electric wire, you know, burnt the insulation off and got a, fashioned a little stick, twisted around, made a finger, and then used to slide them over at least two fingers on each hand. And I'm telling you, it was a, a living hell. For workers, both adults and children, life was increasingly defined by machines, and political systems also took on a mechanistic aspect. The term political machines was used to describe the systems of patronage, graft, hierarchy, and corruption that defined local governance. Elections were controlled by a new phenomenon in the American experience, Metropolitan Police. Enter the pig.
Beginning in the 19th century, and really going into the first part of the 20th century, local government was largely just an exercise in organized corruption. I mean, Christian really Williams, by organized the author of the system Our Enemies in Blue. In exchange for material benefit. And that came almost automatically, you might say mechanically, which hence the name political machines. The idea was that the entire resources of the city government were at the disposal of whatever political party happened to be in power at the moment. And so they would use those resources to reward their supporters and to punish their opponents. The police were very important in the operation of these machines for a number of reasons. One being that police jobs could be used as rewards for supporters of the political party who won the election. So it wasn't unusual to see departments completely emptied out and suffer a complete turnover following an election that went one way rather than the other. Also, the elections were largely determined by physical control of the polling places. Political parties would mobilize their supporters more or less as rival gangs and literally fight for control of polling places. Of course, the police were instrumental in making sure that these fights went one way rather than the other, and then also had responsibility for you know, regulating the polls and then in many places for transporting the ballots and some places for counting the ballots. So they could suppress the votes of the opposition party and inflate the votes of the party that was in power. So really... So once again, nothing has changed in American politics. Um, in 2020, the, you know, Greg Palast, investigative journalist, busted the uh, Republican Party in the U.S. elections of suppressing hundreds of thousands of votes. I think Georgia alone was busted suppressing 150,000 votes. And these are all votes of, you know, in impoverished neighborhoods, students, people with ethnic-sounding names. So they're trying to purge people, working-class people, from the voter rolls. And this was proven in the 2020 election. He also proved it in the uh, 2002 George Bush election. This worked as kind of a protection racket. And when I talk about political support, I don't just mean support in the sense of mobilizing votes and expressing sympathy and that kind of thing. I also mean support in financial terms. Businesses, prominent citizens, that sort of thing, were expected to financially contribute to the funds of the machine that they supported. The ones that did would receive police protection. The ones that didn't would receive police harassment. This was especially important in terms of illegal businesses, so illegal saloons, brothels, that sort of thing, if they supported the party in power, could expect police protection. And in fact, in many cities, the police would be responsible for collecting the bribes. If they did not, they could expect that the law would be enforced and they would see their business be shut down. This arrangement continued in most American cities well into the 20th century. In addition to providing protection rackets for organized crime and determining the outcome of elections, police were also used to discipline the working class. In Tompkins Square, New York, 1874, 7,000 workers protested unemployment only to be savagely attacked by police. In the words of Samuel Gompers, who went on to lead the American Federation of Labor, mounted police charged the crowd on 8th Street riding them down and attacking men, women, and children without discrimination. 
It was an orgy of brutality. A few years earlier, common experiences between workers at the hands of police, politicians, and employers had given rise to the first major attempt at unionization in the United States. Founded in 1869 by garment cutters in Philadelphia, the Knights of Labor rapidly expanded to 700,000 members. The whole idea for capital was to pay as little as possible for workers. And workers obviously ended up reacting to that and organizing, first realizing the power of their numbers. Author Sharon so for example, Smith. in the 1880s, you had the rise of the Knights of Labor, which was the precursor to industrial unionism in that basically working class people just banded together and went on strike. The head of the union, Terence Powderly, was opposed to strikes, but the workers went on strike anyway and began to realize their, the power that they had to withhold their labor in, as a key weapon against the employers. The Knights opposed the wage system calling it an insult to the divine nature of man, his high and noble capability for good. They welcomed blacks and women, arguing that failure to do so would drive down the wages of everyone. They opposed what they termed the aristocracy of labor, the common tendency of trade unions to exclude members according to skill level. Tongues firmly in cheek, they excluded bankers, lawyers, liquor manufacturers, and stockholders, whom they labeled unproductive members of society. Despite the Knights' promotion of working-class unity, the entrenched racism of American society made progress difficult. Attempts to unionize black workers in the South often ended in violence. In 1886, the Knights tried to organize African-American workers in the southern sugar fields. At Thibodeau, Louisiana, martial law was declared. Two black union organizers, Henry and George Cox, were arrested and never heard from again. The next day, 20 other black union members were found dead. In response to the massacre, an editorial in an African-American newspaper reported, to even think that such disregard for human life is permitted in this portion of the United States makes one question whether or not the Civil War was a failure. Though the Knights achieved some victories, they were ill-prepared for the massive task of organizing three-quarters of a million people. Shortly after their founding, they were replaced by the more exclusionary American Federation of Labor, as well as a diffuse network of smaller, less powerful unions. When the Knights were still gaining an influence, the Great Railroad Strike of 1877 demonstrated the ability of ordinary workers to coalesce into a powerful nationwide force.
united, we cannot In the be 1870s, as the United States was still recovering from civil war and reconstruction and industrialization. This is historian Julie Green. She's going to be chiming in a number of times. This is rapidly taking off. The United States is hit by a depression, 1873 to 1877. Businesses are going bankrupt. Employers trying to survive are laying off workers or slashing wages. Workers begin protesting the wage cuts, which are happening repeatedly. On the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, for example, railroad workers had already, by 1877, confronted three different wage cuts. They go on strike in Martinsburg, West Virginia, refuse to let trains pass until the wage cut is revoked. And this strike quickly spreads. Often it's referred to as the insurrection of 1877. It's really the first major uprising against the new capitalist order. The strike spreads from Virginia to Baltimore, uh, and then west through Pennsylvania to Illinois to Missouri. One of the striking things about this upheaval is that it's not just the railroad workers, whole communities come out to support the striking railroad workers. So families, women, and children, they're saying this is our community. We built this and it shouldn't be left to a few railroad owners to dictate to us. In current society, we could do the same thing and boycott Walmart, Home Depot, Lowe's, you know, try to try to shop at small local stores, although they've mostly been taken out, you know, so our choices have been eliminated. But what I wanted to point out is, you know, this has been a long, arduous war against the working person in, you know, in favor of the corporation. And now the uh, COVID stimulus package is being called the largest transfer of wealth upwards in human history. All these corporations got bailed out. Now, instead of bailing out the person who would then spend the money on rent, propping up the landlord, who would then put that money in the bank, propping up the bank, keeping everything afloat, they bail out the banks so everything, everybody else is screwed. Makes no sense unless you're living in a, you know, oligarchy or plutocracy. In some cities, in Chicago and St. Louis, the strike flowers into an all-out general strike, paralyzing the entire cities for days. So as this is happening, as protest is spreading, as the strike is spreading, the governments at the city and state and federal level are figuring out what to do. They send in, in some cases, state militias. In some cases, the militias refuse to restore order, refuse to fire on the strikers. In Pittsburgh, militiamen bayonet and shoot strikers, killing 20 of them. In protest, the strikers then destroy several buildings and more than 100 train cars and locomotives. 
So in several cases, order is not restored until the president sends in federal troops. In fact, order is restored in part because the president takes troops. This is a signal moment in U.S. history, I think. The president orders troops out of the South where they had been protecting the rights of freed men and women and orders them north to put down working class insurrection. Um, and with that, you can kind of see symbolically the shift in U.S. history from a moment that was about empowering freed slaves, shifting to a moment to repress the rights of working class men and women. We see it as really the first great protest against the new industrial order. And also in its aftermath, governments across the country take action to build urban armories and forts so that the next time a working class uprising occurs, the government will be able to use troops more easily to suppress them. Although the great upheaval was defeated, it wasn't a total loss. Workers in many areas received increased wages and improved working conditions. More importantly, the event crystallized the concept of class struggle in the minds of the poor. During the strike, workers complained that they were treated just as the rolling stock of locomotives. In Baltimore, a striker remarked on class solidarity. The working people everywhere are with us. They know what it is like to bring up a family on 90 cents a day. Barely able to survive after endless toil, workers increasingly looked at the philosophies of socialism, communism, and anarchism. Though socialist literature was often banned from libraries and schools, a spirited labor press emerged in all of the major cities. When a lawyer named Edward Bellamy published a utopian socialist novel titled Looking Backward, it quickly sold over a million copies. Unions around the country were becoming increasingly militant and often resorted to sabotage to prevent strike breaking. In the tradition of the Luddites, they monkey wrenched and destroyed machinery. An account from Atchison, Kansas provides one example. At 12.45 this morning, 10 men on guard at the Missouri Pacific Roundhouse were surprised by the appearance of 35 or 40 masked men. The guards were corralled in the oil room by a detachment of the visitors who stood guard with pistols drawn while the rest of them thoroughly disabled 12 locomotives. By the early 1880s, workers across the nation were uniting under the demand of the eight-hour workday. 4,700 workers struck in Boston, 7,000 in Milwaukee, 9,000 in Baltimore, and 32,000 in Cincinnati. In New York, 25,000 union members created a torchlit procession 
along Broadway. The largest campaign occurred in the industrial epicenter of Chicago, where 40,000 workers went on strike. In 1884, anarchists in Chicago argued for the establishment of a free society based upon cooperative organization of production, organization of education on a secular, scientific, and equal basis for both sexes, and equal rights for all without distinction of sex or race. Other workers joined in. The Chicago cigar makers called for the open rebellion of the robbed class. In 1885, a new central labor union was created, which included metal workers, carpenters, cabinet workers, and butchers. Following a scuffle at a picket line, police shot and killed several workers outside the McCormick Harvester factory in Chicago, the single largest factory in the country. 1,300 men worked 10-hour shifts, six days a week, for non-subsistence wages. Both the mayor and the chief of police routinely received bribes by Cyrus McCormick Jr., the factory's owner. Outraged by the violence, anarchists organized a rally at Haymarket Square. As police charged the protesters, an unknown assailant lobbed a bomb in their direction, killing one officer and fatally wounding another six. The police opened fire. We still don't know to this day where the bomb came from or who threw it. A policeman was killed. The policeman opened fire killing several workers and several other policemen. This incident became known as the Haymarket Incident. Eight laborers, all of them anarchists, activists, acted both in the trade unions and in the anarchist movement, were arrested. Anarchism plays a remarkable role in the late 19th century U.S. It sees state power or centralized power of any kind as fundamentally corrupting. And instead, it emphasizes participatory democracy and a grassroots ways of organizing oneself, cooperatives, collaboration at a very grassroots level. Although the anarchists who'd organized the rally at Haymarket were not linked to the bombing, they were nevertheless arrested and charged with conspiracy. Seven of the men were sentenced to death, and the eighth to 15 years in prison. The trial was widely recognized as a farce. Prior to the arrests, state's attorney Julius Grinnell publicly recommended to make the raids first and look up the law afterwards. Picked jury consisted of businessmen, their own clerks, and a relative of one of the dead policemen, and they were instructed that anarchy is on trial, make examples of them, hang them, and save our institutions, our society. Sentenced to death, August Spees delivered a speech before the court. 
If you think that by hanging us, you can stamp out the labor movement, the movement from which the downtrodden millions, the millions who toil and live in want and misery, the wage slaves, if that is your opinion, then hang us. Here we will tread upon a spark, and behind you and in front of you, flames will blaze up. It is a subterranean fire. The ground is on fire upon which you stand. A year after his trial, August Spees was hanged along with Albert Parsons, Adolf Eicher, and George Engel. Louis Ling committed suicide while in prison to deny the state its pound of flesh. Though the executions were welcomed by Chicago's gentry, international opinion was overwhelmingly negative. From London, the famous playwright George Bernard Shaw remarked, if the United States must lose eight men, it could better afford to lose the eight members of the Illinois Supreme Court. It was a huge incident in U.S. history, not only for those arrested, but for the entire labor movement, because it led to a powerful backlash against workers and against anyone perceived as being radical and or immigrant. Across the country, workers were fired if they were suspected of being union activists or being radicals. Many workers lost their jobs. Many found it just politically impossible to express radical beliefs freely. And in this environment, the Knights of Labor, which had risen to some, something like 800,000 members, uh, in the aftermath of Haymarket, the Knights of Labor membership quickly fell until by 1890, it was nearly a dead organization. At the same time that the Knights of Labor was growing in power in the 1880s, Another approach to organizing workers was created. The uh, Federation of Trade and Labor Unions is founded in 1881, and in 1886, it changes its name to the American Federation of Labor, the predecessor to what we know today as the AFL-CIO. Founded by Samuel Gompers, a cigar maker, along with several other skilled workers, the AFL emerged with a, a very different approach to things than the Knights of Labor. It was a, a federation of mostly craft unions, meaning that for the most part, it organized workers according to their craft. Craft workers tended to be the most highly skilled workers, the workers who were paid the most, who had the most resources. So within the AFL, you would have a union of printers, of steel workers, of carpenters, etc., all the different kinds of crafts coming together in this federation. In the late 19th century, what you have is workers have to find a path to opposing the new capitalist order. And they can do it by coming together in broad solidarities. They can do it through political action or they can assume a more defensive posture and focus on a unionism that will mostly just represent the most 
highly skilled workers. Despite the exclusionary policies of the AFL, the flame of labor activism in the United States continued to spread. Union membership continued to grow exponentially, increasing 20-fold between the years 1886 and 1905, and resulting in over 35,000 separate strikes. Homestead Steelworks Factory in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, workers were being pushed to the brink. One out of 11 steelworkers died while on the job, often due to lack of sleep. Pay between workers and management was grotesquely unequal. And new technologies were de-skilling workers and driving them further into poverty. When labor actions resulted, the owner of the factory, Andrew Carnegie, fled to Scotland. Publicly supporting labor unions, he privately wrote to the plant's manager, Henry Frick, that he should reorganize the whole affair. Far too many men are required by amalgamated rules. Frick went on to hire a private militia known as the Pinkerton Detective Agency. The goal, to intimidate workers into submission. is not so different from Europe as some would claim, but the U.S. ruling class has always used the most repressive and violent means at their disposal to crush workers when they went out on strike. The U.S. is notable because large corporations tended to have their own private militias or armies. And when they did it, they would hire what was then, you know, the most famous company was known as the Pinkertons, but they would hire basically private armies to come in and do battle with workers. And I mean, I'm talking about armed, using whatever weapons they could, killing workers as often as they wanted to, and getting away with it. There were many different companies that created detective agencies and their specific goal was to have them there and ready to serve as watchmen, as guards, to infiltrate unions and radical movements and to break strikes and often to incite riots to serve as agent provocateurs. Pinkerton's agency became 
famous, founded in 1850. By the late 19th century, it was the best-known detective agency and was active in many of the most important strikes in the period. From the government investigations into their activities and from a few exposés by men who had served as Pinkertons, we know that they used a wide range of nefarious tactics to achieve their ends. Terence Powderly, the leader of the Knights of Labor, once said, whenever we saw that Pinkertons had been assigned to work as watchmen, we had to get our own guys to be watchmen, to watch over the watchmen. And we would see them doing things like laying dynamite on railroad tracks or um, inciting men to engage in riots. So there's an entire world of really quite shadowy infiltrations, creation of goon squads to go in and, and bust up heads, that sort of thing. It's an important part of the history of labor in the United States. We've seen the continuation of this tactic with, um, you know, the, the double, the World Trade Organization protests up in Seattle where there were agent provocateurs, busted off-duty police, um, busting windows to discredit the protesters. We also saw this uh, many times in the BLM protests recently, um, where people were breaking windows or spray painting a building to discredit a movement that they're not even involved in. So. Agent Provocateurs, the FBI has a long history of this, of infiltrating groups and doing uh, subversive acts to either discredit them or to take them down from the inside. A great example of this is the Homestead Strike of 1892, easily one of the most important strikes in United States history. It was centered in the steel industry, steel workers, had a strong union. They were among the most powerful and militant of all workers in the United States. The homestead struggle is motivated by the skilled workers who belong to a, an organization called the, the Sons of Vulcan. And they're fighting not only to get better wages and shorter hours, but also to try to forestall these organizational changes that are going on. Frick hires Pinkertons, and there's this hugely dramatic moment where Pinkertons come floating up the Monongahela River. Because, of course, all of these industrial facilities sit on rivers, both in order to ship their stuff more cheaply and in order to dump their crap into the water. And so here come the Pinkertons up uh, on a raft. On the morning of July 6th, a tugboat appeared on the Monongahela River, towing a barge of 300 Pinkertons. Tipped off by other workers, the strikers in Homestead armed themselves with rifles and awaited their arrival. A standoff ensued. Then, a gunshot rang out. 
Outnumbered and outgunned, the Pinkertons raised the white flag after a full day of fighting. The prisoners were then marched through a gauntlet of townspeople, where they suffered verbal and sometimes physical abuse. Remarkably, none of the prisoners were killed and were ultimately set free. On July 12th, Governor Robert E. Pattison sent in the National Guard. The troops were used to protect strike breakers, which in turn led to the defeat of the Union. The strike by now has been pretty much defeated. This defeat became a signal one in the history of U.S. labor. It would not be until the 1930s that you would have a strong union in the steel industry again as a result of this. So by breaking the back of the steel union, employers had really profoundly weakened the entire labor movement. And they further broke the steel union by breaking the steel industry and outsourcing all those jobs. That's one way to get rid of a, of a union, isn't it? Get rid of the whole industry. So what do the oligarchs care? They'll make money either way, right? They can just as easily own a steel refinery in China. Trials from the time period reveal a widespread knowledge of the duplicitous tactics used by private detective agencies. In response to the Homestead strike, 160 workers were charged with treason and murder, but not a single jury would convict. The entire strike committee was then arrested and charged. Again, no convictions resulted. Henry Frick was not charged for his role in the conflict, prompting one man to take matters into his own hands. On July 23rd, an anarchist named Alexander Berkman walked into Frick's office in downtown Pittsburgh and fired at him from point-blank range. The gun jammed after one shot. Frick survived the attack. Berkman spent the next 14 years in prison. strikes revealed the extraordinary capacity for solidarity between American workers. The union movement as a whole 
continue to be plagued by divisions based on race, ethnicity, sex, and skill level. played a major role in the building of California's roads, railways, aqueducts, and orchards. Yet, when Chinese railroad workers went on strike in 1867, demanding higher wages, shorter working hours, a ban on whipping, and the right to quit their jobs, almost no one came to their aid. In November 1885, members of the Knights of Labor participated in a race riot in Rock Springs, Wyoming, which resulted in the deaths of 28 Chinese Americans. Racialization of citizenship in the context of class conflict and class struggle produces the Chinese Exclusion Act. There were major strikes within the rail system and Chinese workers were a significant part of the railroad workforce, especially in the western part of the country. The movement to exclude the Chinese developed in the context of that labor struggle and in the context of a great economic crisis that had happened a few years before. Both Democrat and Republican parties and even smaller parties began to promote the idea that a solution for the immediate crisis is the exclusion of Chinese workers. And while there were minority voices opposing this, especially among socialists at the time, the dominant voice, one that united the whole working class and whole sections of the middle class and penetrated into the working class was to exclude the Chinese, to drive the Chinese out. And so the exclusion of Chinese represents the first comprehensive exclusionary immigration policy, primarily based on race. And it begins a shift in our immigration policy in which now immigration policy is going to be defined more increasingly as a means of excluding people based on race, based on class, based on politics, rather than including people and encouraging people to come. Race, gender, ethnicity were used to divide workers against one another. If we think about what employers were trying to achieve in this period, in their eyes, their goal was to reduce their labor costs. And they did that by introducing technologies that allowed them to de-skill workers. They did it by opposing unionization. And they did it by finding workers they could hire more cheaply and control more easily. And so increasingly, for employers, the use of different kinds of workers became really important. They recruited uh, labor from Europe, first German and Irish, and then later Southern and Eastern Europeans, Hungarians, Italians. They recruited women into certain industries. They recruited as time went by, they recruited Mexicans. They looked for Chinese or Japanese when they could, all in an, as part of this larger effort to undercut the power 
of their workers and to reduce their costs. They became, over time, very, very deliberate and careful and strategic about this. And you can find in the written record, when you, especially when you look beyond the northeast of the United States to other parts of the country, you can see employers laying out in their letters their concern to bring in different workers to undercut the power of those that are already there. Think about the plantations in Hawaii, for example. I've seen letters where employers say the Japanese have too much control, too much power. We have to do something. We want an okay from the United States government to bring in Filipinos and Puerto Ricans. And so they do. And so several thousand Puerto Ricans and Filipinos go to work in the cane fields of Hawaii. And the same official then writes, it has been a splendid experiment. The Japanese now know they are not the only worker. We've been able to cut their wages. So with experiments like that, employers, planters, steel owners learn that using different kinds of workers can be one of their best weapons. Scholars studying who's working in steel mills in the early 20th century have found that employers would bring in people from different parts of Europe, people who spoke different languages, and having them work right next to each other specifically so that it would be harder for them to organize. If you can't even communicate in the same language, it's going to be bloody difficult to form a union and protest what the employer is demanding of you. In the late 19th century, an increasing number of workers began to recognize that they could not successfully mobilize under the robber barons without overcoming their own racial and cultural prejudices. One of the most remarkable strikes occurred in New Orleans, 1892, when Teamsters, Scalesmen, and Packers united under what they called the Triple Alliance. Their demands included a 10-hour workday, overtime pay, and a union shop. In the words of one historian, the New Orleans strike represented the first general strike in American history to enlist both skilled and unskilled labor, black and white, and to paralyze the life of a great city. Delivery of food ceased. Streetcars remained idle. Electrical and gas workers walked off the job, plunging the city into darkness and revealing the stars. During the strike, the New Orleans press repeatedly tried to stoke the flames of racial hatred. Newspapers ran fabricated stories about mobs of black men harassing and beating up whites. The Triple Alliance abandoned their fight after the governor threatened to bring in the National Guard, but they maintained racial solidarity throughout the campaign. There was this mass strike in 1892 in New Orleans, uniting basically the entire black and white working class um, 
of New Orleans. Workers, for example, at the docks were organized into biracial unions, so they were segregated within the same union local, but on the job, dock workers, line workers, etc., the danger of the job and the physical effort that goes into it tended to really break down racial divisions in those occupations first and foremost. So it was very significant. It was crushed, but then within a decade or so afterwards, there was another mass strike in New Orleans in which black and white workers again united. In the meantime, the local ruling class decided to make Jim Crow. Jim Crow was essentially a response to populism, the enforcement of separation of the races. It was legally sanctioned in the South. In the North, you had basically de facto racial segregation. So it was really a nationwide phenomenon. So basically, what did the U.S. ruling class do? They made it illegal for blacks and whites to share any public space together. They made it illegal for blacks and whites to marry. By the 1930s in Alabama, it was against the law to agitate for any kind of equal rights. That was the, the kind of the weapon that developed, that the U U.S. corporate class developed in response to things like the New Orleans uh, strike in 1892. The New Orleans strike was emblematic of a growing spirit of solidarity between workers. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, it would find political expression in the People's Party, the Socialist Party, and the Progressive Movement. More importantly, it would lead to the formation of the Industrial Workers of the World, the most radical union in the history of the United States. So that's the end of Plutocracy, part one. What an amazing movie. Maybe uh, the most important documentary series ever made about um, how workers' rights have been repressed in the United States by our oligarchs for the last hundred years and how it continues to this very day. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed that and found it as illuminating, frustrating, and inspiring as I did. It's been Dave with And Another Thing with Dave. Peace out.